Welcome to D-Day in 90 Minutes, our riveting 15-part weekly podcast series that delves deep into the historic Allied invasion from almost every perspective imaginable. Join us as we unravel the logistics, untold stories, strategic maneuvers, and heroic acts that shaped one of the most pivotal events in World War II. In Episode 2, Strategy and Sacrifice, we examine the crucial decisions of where and when to attack. A great deal was on the line, as any miscalculations could cost the Allies tens of thousands of lives. I'm Robert Child, and Episode 2 of D-Day in 90 Minutes will begin in a moment. I'm Robert Child, and I'd love for you to join me on my brand new podcast, Stories of Faith and Courage. In gripping narratives, we'll walk alongside ancient heroes who face down giants, conquering adversity, and hear tales of modern-day warriors whose unwavering faith sustained them through the darkest of times. Plus, we'll explore enigmatic ancient mysteries like the connection of the Shroud of Turin to the Knights Templar that will leave you on the edge of your seat. I hope you'll join me on Stories of Faith and Courage. It's available now on your favorite podcast platform. D-Day in 90 Minutes. Written by William Bradle, Robert Child. Narrated by Travis. He who defends everything defends nothing. Frederick the Great. Hitler ignored the words of his hero, Frederick the Great, and attempted to defend everything, or nearly everything. In the end, Frederick was right. In March of 1943, British Lieutenant General Frederick Morgan was assigned the task of planning the invasion. In the British Army, a lieutenant general is below the ranks of general and field marshal, but above the ranks of brigadier general and major general. A lieutenant general is usually in command of a battlefield corps. Morgan entered the Army in 1913, after graduating from the Royal Military Academy at Woolwich. He served in the artillery and was a staff officer in World War I in France. He was nearly hit by a German shell that threw him into the air, burying him in a shell hole. He survived and was hospitalized with shell shock for a short period of time. His brother was killed in the war. Between wars, he served two tours in India. Morgan commanded a stripped-down brigade in France at the outset of World War II and escaped back to England at Dunkirk. Most of his command did not. He went back into service leading a homeland defense division in southeastern England. He was promoted and put in charge of planning a response to a rumored German invasion through Spain to Gibraltar. The operation never came about, and his divisions were sent to North Africa, while he stayed in England to plan the invasion of Sardinia, another operation that did not materialize. By now, Morgan and his staff had considerable operational planning experience. In March 1943, the rank of Supreme Allied Commander was established, with the assumption the commander would be British. Protocol dictated that the commander and his chief of staff should be the same nationality, and Morgan was named Cossack, or Chief of Staff Supreme Allied Commander. When Eisenhower was ultimately named commander, Morgan stepped down in favor of an American, Major General Bedell Smith. But in the winter of 1943, it was Morgan who got the ball rolling. 
After the war, he was named head of the United Nations Displaced Persons efforts, but was fired for criticizing the program's incompetence and corruption. After that, he became a key figure in Britain's nuclear weapons program. But in 1943, his task was figuring out where along the Atlantic Wall the Allies would attack. In theory, the wall ran from Norway to the Spanish border, a distance of over 1,600 miles. The Germans had neither the men nor the material to defend the distance, and concentrated their efforts on where they thought the Allies would or could attack. Finding the shortest route to the Rhine-Ruhr Valley was Morgan's first and easiest task. That route led from southeastern England through Pas-de-Calais, 21 miles away and less than 300 miles from the Rhine-Ruhr. Pas-de-Calais is also a natural port, a major requirement for the Allies. Of course, the Germans felt the attack would come there and fortified the area accordingly, massing the majority of their troops, tanks, and guns in and around Pas-de-Calais. Morgan and his staff concluded that the choice was too obvious and so began looking for other areas that met the following criteria. A major port close enough to occupy soon after the landing. The beach able to handle the unloading of massive amounts of material until a real port was taken. The attack area within range of the Allied air forces. Fortifications still under construction or undermanned. Pas-de-Calais met all the qualifications except the last one. Other possibilities were checked off the list, too. Holland and Belgium were too close to the Luftwaffe, now defending Germany. The port of Cherbourg is often battered by storms in the spring and summer, and guarded by German forces occupying the former British islands of Guernsey and Jersey. The planning group finally settled on the Calvados coast of Normandy. The area has the smallish port of Caen, and the port of Cherbourg is about 50 miles from the Normandy beaches. The beaches are further from England than Calais, at 90 miles, but doable according to the planners. The attack would also come against the less fortified defenders of the 7th Army, with only one panzer group, as opposed to the 15th Army with five panzer groups around Pas-de-Calais. Another consideration is that beaches in France differ greatly from beaches in the United States. Beaches are few and flanked by the French equivalents of the White Cliffs of Dover, huge cliff faces hundreds of feet high. There are only so many suitable beaches on the western coast of France. Omaha Beach is flanked by cliffs on both ends only 7,000 yards apart. 7,000 yards sounds like a large space, but not when occupied by the planned number of over 34,000 soldiers and material that was to land on D-Day. The beach was a funnel, feeding men into the guns of the entrenched Germans. The beaches had to be able to handle the weight of the tanks, landing craft, and heavy earth-moving equipment, including bulldozers and tractors. An ancient Roman study of available fuel sources showed the legions had harvested peat off the beaches. A peat bog would not handle the weight of a tank. To determine the makeup of the beaches, a British mini-submarine set off for the French coast on New Year's Eve, January 31, 1943. The date was picked on the assumption the German defenders would be celebrating and not paying attention to the beach. Two swimmers, a major and a sergeant, swam from the sub to the beach and took 12, 
12-inch deep samples from what would become Sword Beach. Upon analysis, the samples indicated the beaches could handle the weight of the vehicles. Most of us think geographically that France is east of England. That is not the case. France actually comes up under England. If England is a rough triangle with a wide part at the bottom, the Cotentin Peninsula of France sits almost directly below this bottom. The tip of the peninsula is as far west as Land's End in England. The attack beaches lie almost due south of the British ports of Southampton and Portsmouth, again a distance of almost 100 miles, a longer distance than Pas-de-Calais. But the other positive elements of Normandy outweighed the distance issue. Dwight Eisenhower overruled part of the plan. Morgan was hobbled in planning by a major assumption, that there were only a finite number of landing craft available for the invasion. The number of craft limited the number of soldiers, and that limited the scope of the attack. Morgan recommended a landing on four beaches. Eisenhower, supported by Lord Montgomery and Omar Bradley and their staffs, wanted more men and more landing crafts and more beaches. Eisenhower got a bigger allotment of landing crafts and things fell into place. Except for one thing. Morgan knew the Germans had flooded large parts of the coastal area west of the planned four beaches. Germans could easily cut the raised roads leading into the flooded areas, and the troops landing on the western beaches would be cut off from the other Allied forces. Eisenhower countered with assigning his highly trained American airborne divisions, 82nd and 101st, to drop the night before D-Day behind the beaches. The paratroopers would seize the roads, allowing the beach attackers the way inland. Eisenhower prevailed because of the added landing craft and the airborne plan of attack. The where of the invasion was now settled. The invasion area is roughly 50 miles in length. Starting on the east end is Sword Beach, to be assaulted by the British 3rd Infantry Division. The night before the invasion, the British 6th Airborne Division would drop inland from Sword and occupy the critical Pegasus Bridge over the Orne River. The 6th would be in place to stop, or at least slow down, any panzer attack on the beach. The Canadian Infantry Division would land at Juneau Beach, roughly five miles west of Sword. The British 50th Division would land at Gold Beach, about four miles west of Juneau. Then, a gap of 15 miles, again to the west, to Omaha Beach, which was to be assaulted by the United States Army V Corps, made up of the 29th Infantry Division and 1st Infantry Division. Ten miles further west, the U.S. 4th Infantry Division would come ashore at Utah Beach. The night before D-Day, the 82nd Airborne and the 101st Airborne would fly a roundabout route southwest from England, out over the Atlantic west of Cherbourg and the Cotentin Peninsula then southeast and finally north to drop and occupy the raised roads leading to Utah Beach. The next question was when. The earliest proposed date was March 1944. The problem with March, and April for that matter, is rough Norman weather. Storms come racing off the Atlantic unpredictably in March and April, making it impossible to forecast a period of calm to move the invasion force across the English Channel. April was also rejected because the Allies wanted to coordinate the Normandy invasion with a renewed Russian offensive. 
the April thaw in Russia would leave Russian armor stuck in the mud. Morgan settled on May 1st, only to be overruled again by Eisenhower. Eisenhower pushed the date to June 1st to allow for another month's production of landing craft. Other factors went into the final chosen date, with each service having its own priorities and requirements. The Air Forces wanted the attack to come in the afternoon to allow morning airborne attacks. Flying in daylight would allow the bombers to more accurately see and hit their targets. The navies wanted to sail and land in daylight to avoid collisions among the thousands of crafts ranging from battleships to 36-foot-long Higgins boats. Daylight would also make for more accurate shelling of the coast. The Army generals prevailed with the dawn landing because of the element of surprise, and landing at dawn would give the soldiers a full day of fighting. Because Europe is much further north than the United States, sunset in France in June is at 9.45 p.m., with 16 hours of daylight. There were more requirements. The Allies wanted to land on a rising tide, with the most beach area exposed as possible, so the landing craft could run up on the beach, unload, and then float free on the rising tide. In addition, the navies and the air forces and the airborne needed at least a half moon. The ships had to have some illumination to avoid collisions and make their way. The paratroopers needed at least a half moon to make their jumps and assemble and secure their targets. They would jump five hours before the landings. There were only two periods in June that fit the requirements, June 5th, 6th, and 7th, and June 19th and 20th. Eisenhower picked June 5th. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of D-Day in 90 Minutes. Join us next week for our next installment. Who were the enemy troops the Allies would face when they came ashore? Defending the West End, the American end of the invasion area, was the 709th Static Infantry Division. Static meant defensive with no motorized transport. They used horses. The division had many Russian XPOWs and Eastern European soldiers. All the officers and NCOs were Germans, willing to enforce orders at the point of a gun. That's next time. I'm Robert Child, and this has been D-Day in 90 Minutes Only on Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.